like yeah, most of the re most of the chats I have are not ever recorded. Okay, yeah. And, and then quite a lot of them are then taken down because somebody chats and says, "Hey man, I don't want that." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and okay. so instead of editing it out, we just take down the video. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking too because it was um like still in like the song a call so i felt like oh okay but i know it's just the two of us right now so yeah but maybe more folks will join you know <laughs> yes in fact that's gen typically the yeah. case that um uh partly because of the time zone yeah yeah that's why i was bringing it up before because i was like oh okay maybe a little early <laughs> but that's all right <laughs> yeah so um I suppose in terms of questions is more also like clarifying things in terms of those um, different uh, steps. So um, I kind of wanted to go through perhaps even like, so step six, or sorry, step five and six, that's the pity, right? So the pity is five, oh, right? Okay, and, right. Let's this first off, just before we get right down the wrong rabbit yeah. hole on the word okay. step. Yeah. Because that's, in fact, one of the major mistakes that we were talking about from the beginning in the sense that by just in time for the uh, the re, let's say the 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 teaching and the didactic and the way of practice gets started in a retreat to retreats over. If you teach it in a particular order. And that's even Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa did that. But then not in the recorded sessions, the, the, the talk is, oh, no, you're not supposed to practice it that way. That's the way that it's laid out in the suttas because mm -hmm. it's laid out to be corresponding with the Satipatthana. And in those days, everyone was, uh, let us say, uh, literate about the four elements, just like many people in high school now know that there's 92 plus elements on the periodic table. Back in the time of the Buddha, there were only four elements, solid, liquid, fire, and gas. And then from time to time, they would add space and consciousness to it, try to shove all those things into it. But the original four actually is the Satipatthana that the Buddha used in the sense of the body, the feelings, the mind as fire, and mm -hmm. the mental objects as cloud floating by. And so now all of the Anapanasati Sutta is structured that way, but it's structured also in a kind of a didactic way. And when I say didactic, I'm actually talking about a diagonal or a cut in it in the sense that the first two of each of the four tetrads is like the beginners. And then the second two in each one of them is after is for the adept. So yeah. exactly each one of these is a two stage process. OK, and so in the Vedana, Titisuka is developed before we see mm. the relationship between the feelings and the mind, and then we begin to, um, um, let us say, uh, set those down. Hello, Drew. Hi. Welcome. Hi. 
We had just been uh, starting the video only about five minutes ago and was just getting into the Anapana Sati and the steps. So join in. Any sure, questions um, you have? Okay. Yeah, definitely. I'm gonna just gonna grab some food because I'm quite hungry right now. All oh. right. Oh yeah. So real quick though, I did want to ask, like, rather than steps, like, how would you refer to them? Because like sometimes I'm thinking of like parts or when how it comes about, to. How about dance steps? Mm, dance step. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Okay. I, Actually, it's interesting because I was almost thinking about or something. Or like keys yeah. on a piano. Don't take them as uh, 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 16 steps. It's 16 notes on a piano. Mm -hmm. You're being you're, you're like playing them, right? And then you're playing them. Exactly. What play do you play? Well, the order is uh, the fact that the, uh, the universe is playing music. And when we get in key and get in harmony with it, that means that now we're playing the steps of Anapanasati that is in harmony with reality. Mm. But we have to practice some chords and scales first. But we can enjoy doing that too. Yeah. So that we can get the fingering down. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is an analogy with music. Um, but uh, in, in fact, we could say, uh, yes, but in teaching mu music theory, you have to teach a, a C and a D mm. and an E and the relationship between the C and the D and all of that kind of stuff. And yes, that's the way that uh, but it has been taught for centuries. Mm -hmm. But once someone understands the process uh, by putting it together like a puzzle, then when your eyes go over the puzzle, it doesn't have to go in the sequence that you put the puzzle pieces together. You can see it as a whole one piece show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like I like that, though, that that um, analogy with the uh, dance steps and mm -hmm. and also, yeah, with the the chords and the scales too. like doing, you know, uh -huh. that, but then it's bringing it all together right now you uh you could say that uh that there are two suttas or actually a student recommended that we add the third one and that is 117 118 and 119 out of the Majjhima Nikaya where the mm -hmm. 117 is um basically telling the details of what to do and how to practice the Eightfold Noble Path, and then bango, the next um, uh, sutta is the Anapanasati <laughs> Sutta of how mm. to actually practice that. And then 119 actually is speaking of the jhanas and the states that you go through like that. And there's an, also a companion sutta with it, number 111, kind of out of sequence, but really, really close in that group mm -hmm. is that one that you mentioned, the one by one as they occur. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so all of these things fit tightly together, these four, five, six sutras right there in a row. And so let's go back to that first one, the 117, the Eightfold Noble Path is where he, he actually introduces that is, listen carefully, monks, and I will teach you right organization of mind 
with its supports, requisites, and features. Knowing that features are different than requisites or supports. And then he talks about the four requisites of that mind. And those are right sati, right view, and right effort run and circled around one another. And then the fourth one is added, and that is Samasankapa, which we're now looking at it in the in the sense of we could say right intention, but there's other words that may help, and that is right expectation, right attitude, or something that is a little bit like more than pre-thought. It's not actually thought. It happens so fast. It's like a leaning. And we begin oh. to lean now in a direction of um, comfort, safety, security, and mm -hmm. success. Security and success. Security, yeah. Okay, and this security and this success is based upon um, uh, actually security and safety is part of the base then we can feel comfortable and after we feel safe secure and comfortable then we can feel satisfied and as we begin to feel satisfied more and more often we begin to get the attitude that i can feel satisfied that i don't have to feel dissatisfied most of the time because i know how to feel satisfied and that's the change in the attitude from being a loser into being a winner i can do this <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and this is explained right there in that sutta. And that when we have these four factors that run and circle around each other as a group of three until we add that fourth ingredient, and that is in fact in the place that as you begin to see that you can change your mind from an unwholesome state of a victim's position into the wholesome state of we've got this, we can handle this. I can handle mm -hmm. anything. Doesn't matter what happens. I can take care of it, even if it's uh, having a happy death. Doesn't matter what it is. I can take care of it. I can handle this. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune have no target here. Mm. Yeah. Because, because a me or an I is not going to stand up to become <laughs> the target. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. I love that. Yeah, you you went through like just like so much of it with that too. But that, yeah, that oh, was it 117, right? That's the great 40, right? Yes, that's the great yeah. 40. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that kind of um, way of sort of, I suppose, viewing the path too, right? With the Sati um viewing an effort running in circles then coming mm -hmm. to the right attitude right which is i certainly helping me kind of i suppose have more of an understanding of the right attitude too because it's more like there's a kind of a security to it right like this is more of a consistent type of thing right, right. yeah so and i think that kind of moving over to this practice from because I did prior do a lot of the noting, right, is I kind of feel more of that sort of security and that more of like the locking in because there is like something to seeing the impermanence, you know, all the time 
or when you know what I mean, like spotting it, but then having that kind of locking in of the security with that, right, with the right mm -hmm. attitude, yeah, that coming up, and then that leading to the unification of mind, right? So, yeah, the samadhi. Okay. Yeah. Well, staying with that for a moment, mm -hmm. um, there seems to be a point in that sutta where uh, it takes a little bit of reading between the lines. Mm -hmm. After we generate those four, that is the what uh, it, that's implied is that's what creates the organized mm -hmm. mind, because after that it starts into um, the sila part in a completely different method, in the sense that once that mind is organized, with the mind that's noble, one would not go harm someone. With a mind that's noble, one would not um, take something that is not given. Mm -hmm. And so now actually what we're saying is, is that the sila in that sutta is not a work for a beginner to do, but rather is expressed as the outcome of correct practice. Mm -hmm. And that's what's the difference between a, a an ordinary practice where we start with the precepts and the triple gem. And here we're having a practice that winds up in the triple gem and in a mind that's noble. Mm -hmm. That mind being noble uh, uh, is in fact now the mind that is capable of doing the precepts. Isn't that interesting? Because mm -hmm. almost always precepts are taught upside down. There, uh, in fact, there's there's several ways of talking about the Eightfold Noble Path, and that is sila, samati, panya. You've heard that sequence, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Sila, samati, panya. Mm -hmm. But that's not the order of the. Um, practice in that sutta. In that sutta, it starts with panya and then samati winding up in sila. And that means that's the noble path. The ordinary path is sila, samati, panya. And, uh, and the way of looking at it is, is that at that point, when Panya is arrived, then a shift is made off of the ordinary path of Silo Samati Panya into the noble path. Where things are rearranged now that that the uh, uh, the order is changed around because now what we originally practiced first to Sila. Is now only seen uh, as a natural outcome rather than the major work to do. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the path. Mm -hmm. uh, that in fact, um, one of the ways that we can understand that is, is whether we're putting on a long term frame of reference or a very short term of frame of reference. And we bring it to a very short term frame of reference and all one needs to do is to become secluded from the world. And now your seal is perfect. Mm -hmm. You go into the meditation hall and you sit down and you <laughs> hold your legs and you close your eyes and you sit all happy and smiley face for a while. Your seal right then and there is perfect. Yeah, yeah. That 
that really does i feel like um that really does help like ease the mind as well right with that like okay you know i'm sitting here i'm not harming anyone you know it's all good (laughs) (laughs) rather than yeah 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 getting off into these long drawn out things of oh i i need to become perfected in this and that and and Mm -hmm. and all those you know and perfect moral behavior and all that stuff that's that's the ordinary path yeah. And it works. Mm-hmm. And it can be called a slow, dry, uh, hard, all of those kind of words that ordinary people use. Mm-hmm. Or you can <laughs> you <laughs> or you can go directly to the noble. But in fact, this is what Achan Apo had had said that he wanted on uh the internet and he meant these Skype calls because he knows mm-hmm. they're here uh, and that to start off at the noble that we do not drag three people all the way from grade school through graduation of university in order to put them in graduate school we just put them right into graduate school they'll get what they need <laughs> The noble Dharma. Some people say I'm not ready for it. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Because if we wait until somebody's ready, that's going to keep the whole thing very small, which has mm-hmm. been for, for centuries. The nobles have been around and had the criteria of basically the uh, the point is, is that the right student has to ask the right question at the right time to the right teacher in order to get the door open. Mm-hmm. If you ask it at the wrong time, it will be misunderstood. If you ask it at uh, uh, to the wrong teacher, he doesn't even know where the door is or what this is all about. <laughs> but Bhikkhu Buddhadasa actually decided in the 1930s to turn all of that around. And that's what got him into trouble. Mm-hmm. But that was the best thing that ever happened to him because that was actually, he was figuring this out on his own as a monk, arguing with the poly teachers in Bangkok and being invited to give public talks that had an audience who went back to some of the biggest, most important monks in Bangkok to complain about this guy doing a, um, uh, I think, in fact, it was a graduation ceremony for a nursing school or something like that. <laughs> it was a oh, big thing. Yeah. And um, in this uh, uh, trial that he was in, the Sangha de Sessa is where it uh, he met the fact that there were others on that uh, trial board of 20 monks that understood what he was saying was uh-huh. correct. <laughs> and it wound up starting a uh, a literature search. Part of the reason why the trial took more than three or four months was because it included uh, a literature search. Mm-hmm. But Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would spout something, and he'd say it comes from that sutta. They had to all go back to the Pali, and everybody translate it and figure out that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was right here. Mm-hmm. And so the outcome of that trial, just as a, uh, a, a really humorous point, is that the outcome was is that he was guilty of teaching the wrong things. He excuse me backwards. He was guilty of teaching the right things 
to the wrong people, a general audience. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm guilty of. <laughs> Happily following my lineage. I'm guilty of, yes, sir, I'm absolutely guilty of teaching the right, right thing to the wrong people. <laughs> because some of those wrong people will hear it mm-hmm. and say, yeah, okay. And so oh. far, so good. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's been going great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's talk back to these these three suttas of seventeen, one eighteen, and one nineteen, and that is the one eighteen sutta is the Anapanasati sutta mm-hmm. that starts off as a really big deal, in the sense that the sutta was announced in advance that the Buddha would be doing this, and then all of them gathered together at this full moon where you had Sariputta and all of his students and Chanda and all of his students and Mahakasapa and all of his students. I think uh, Mahamagala was already dead by that time or gone. But in any case, the whole point was is that it was a big collection of monks. <laughs> and this is where he delivered the Anapanasati Sutta. But these guys, many of them already knew it. But he was also talking about a lot of stuff. He meant, This is, in fact, where the sutta is saying, oh, monks, there is a great collection here. Some are Sotapan, some are uh, Sotagami, some are Anagami, some are uh, Arahats. Oh, there are those who are practicing Metta. Oh, there are those who are practicing Jhana. Some are practicing and getting the fourth and the fifth and the 19th. And no, he didn't go that far up to the fourth, in fact, that's all. But he mentions that. Um, but then he says, uh, talking about Anapanasati, mm-hmm. as if it's different from these other practices. Well, guess what? Jhana was already before the Buddha. Metta practice was already before the Buddha. But he's giving a new sutta or a new thing here uh, that is of great fruit and benefit that follows the Satipatthana. And the Satipatthana is for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment. Now, one of the things that people get confused on is not understanding the relationship between the seven factors of enlightenment and the Eightfold Noble Path. I mean, it doesn't even have the same numbers. So how could it possibly be? But the the way to look at it is, is that the Eightfold Noble Path is the path and that the eight, the seven factors of enlightenment are the fulfillment of those skills. And the first item on the list of the seven factors of enlightenment is unremitting sati. All right, where is the unremitting sati inside of the uh, seven, excuse me, the, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta? It's at step nine and ten of waking up, taking a look, and gladdening the mind. The exact stuff that you see in the 117 is right there in 118 and expressed in a completely different way. And then you can also see, all right, so maybe the sequence then is to wake up, take a look, gladden the mind in step uh, 9 and 10, and then by doing that, it begins to change the pity and the sukha is step uh, five and six. 
all the while we're already practicing step one or two, but as we're practicing step one and two mm -hmm. of the breathing, we begin then slowly to get step three because we're now beginning to see the feelings and seeing the connection and the feelings between the body and the feelings and ultimately understanding the connection between the mind, the feeling, the body and how they're all interrelated. And so this is part of the investigations that we do. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a kind of an interesting thing is, is that people will try to practice Anapanasati step one, two, three, and then four by doing like Goenka has them doing the body scanning. Every Goenka retreat, as far as I know, step uh, day three through day 10 is scanning. Mm -hmm. All right, they're just staying there on step uh, uh, three of Anapanasati. Where do they ever teach how to relax the body? They don't. Because it's they all do, oh, up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't really go into, that would be four, right? The right, relaxation. Step yeah. four, exactly. Yeah. Step, it's the relaxation of the body. Mm -hmm. Ah, but if you recognize it because there is a sutta that, by the way, does not have uh, five factors uh, for the first jhana, it has six. It adds an additional one, and that is the relaxation of the body. Mm. It's not normally in the first five, but when you add that as an aspect to it, that means it all. As we're actually practicing the skill and developing the skill of Pitti Sukha and also the gladdening of the mind, that takes care of much of the first jhana in the sense of freedom from the hindrance through the gladdening of the mind and also the Pitti and the Sukha. And then the next parts are being able to apply this over and over and over again. In other words, keep bringing the mind out of the unwholesome. That's the unremitting sati and the unremitting investigation, mm -hmm. and then the unremitting effort is not effort anymore. Now it's actually used as unremitting energy because we've already got our enthusiasm. We've got our mojo going, <laughs> okay, as well as we've got some skills going in there. Or we've got that attitude change. And the attitude, here's a clear example of that is, is that the, the mom tells her teenage son, there's a lot of garbage in the kitchen. Go clean it up and take it out. He does, but it takes a while and it's an effort. Mm -hmm. Now, the second story is this teenage kid walks into the kitchen someday and he sees a, a bunch of garbage there and he says, hot dog, mom would be really happy <laughs> if I clean that up. He picks all of that stuff. He takes it out to the trash. Now, which one was the more effort? The one when he didn't want to do it or the time when he actually wanted to do it? Well, absolutely the time when he wanted to do it, right? That, oh, or sorry, last, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, that's the right effort. The right is yeah. when wanting to do it mm. half and then mm -hmm. it's so much effort anymore mm -hmm. you have the enthusiasm right mm -hmm. and <laughs> exactly that's what's built right into the package yeah. and actually that's mentioned in uh, another sutta number 48 is that enthusiasm or that eagerness for the dharma mm -hmm. And so eager for the practice of the Dhamma, I would say, is even as important as eager for didactic information about the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. 
repracticing it. So this is where that eagerness comes in. It makes it really effortless or, oh, well, I got nothing else to do now that I recognize that I, you know, <laughs> now that I woke up. With <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's like, oh, it's like the, the practice, too, is like a joy within itself, right? Like just, you know, coming back to it. It's not like some grim task or something and I need to do this so that one day I, you know, do get enlightened or something. Like, isn't, you know. isn't that, but that one point is such yeah. a major change in attitude. The loser has the attitude of look how hard I tried and look how hard I've got to try. May I please have my reward someday? Thank you, sir. Because you're the boss and I'm just a, all right. And changing that attitude of, hey, boy, look at this. We got that one. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's it, too. Like with spotting the hindrances on that sort of point where you do spot them, having that attitude as well of the congratulations of the like you're almost having that reaction of pity of the aha, I see you, Mara. Right. It, it mm -hmm. gladdens the mind along with that so you're spotting it and you're gladdening right so when you you do catch yourself kind of drifting into something it's like oh wait oh no problem because mm -hmm. it's already working right yeah yes exactly and we didn't know that until you know this little piece of information look at what you're doing mm -hmm. That's what I think that that was the one that did it for me with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, because I asked him one time, uh, actually, uh, in the sense of uh, Vipassana and setting and all of that, he says, uh, I said, um, there's a, a poem in English, and that is, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Okay, well, that's the Vipassana, that practice, that's the Western Mahasi, that's it. And he chuckled and he says, no, if you first don't succeed, look at what you're doing. <laughs> and that is such a jaw dropper. I mean, that <laughs> he hit me with that. And that was, uh, I think, the change in the point in time when I began to understand what all of this is about. Is, is that we're not trying to gain something. We're looking at what's going on instead. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the noting takes on a completely different quality now because of that whole idea of gladdening the mind. I think another reason why it's often missing is because anybody who's written a book on Anapanasati almost always follows the format uh, that the Sutta lays out. And the Sutta 118 actually follows the plan of Sutta number 10, the knock-knock, Satipatthana Sutta. <laughs> <laughs> And the Satipatthana Sutta would naturally be laid out in the order that it was laid out in ancient times of uh, hard ground first, then uh, water, and then fire, and then air. Mainly fire before air is because fire happens and then smoke rises into the air. Would be the reason why the ancients would have had it that way. Okay. Which is exactly yeah. what happens. In fact, there's a song about it. When your heart's on fire, burning with desire, smoke gets in your eyes. 
platters 1953 <laughs> okay yeah i was like i feel like i've heard that one but at the same time i'm like have i it sounded familiar um <laughs> yeah yeah no that's interesting that how it yeah they're like laid out in the um the uh in the satipatthana the foundations of mindfulness like they actually align with the the elements there right so mm-hmm. again like the body as the body is like the um right the earth right right and then the feelings was that the fire feeling yes yeah. feeling feelings vedana is the yeah. water yeah and the then yeah because those feelings are fluid i mean and they make us work and they make the body move up and down and all of that that they could ancients could see that that there is some lift and in fact uh when you bl- drain the blood out of somebody the body dies I mean, this is old, ancient literature. Okay. Oh, so, yeah, that was, so, yeah, it was the, um. So there's the body, there's the fluid or the feelings. Oh, so that's fluid, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then the the mind was, um. Mind of fire. Fire. So the mind was fire. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the, uh, uh, Ajahn Tanisaro's book on, um, uh, what is the name of it? Something like Mind of Fire or Mind on Fire. The book has had, has uh, uh, Mind on Fire. Okay. And yeah. also the Buddha goes back to the point of uh, burning by day and smoldering by night. Smoldering refers to dreaming. Okay. So, yeah, mental fire. Uh, and we still use that. Uh, reference today is that I'm far, all fired up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, yeah, and then the is it the Dhammas, right? The fourth uh, foundation right. that would be air, then, right? Yeah, well, in yeah. this air. in this sense, yes, which yeah. means everything around us. Yeah. So okay. yeah. <clears throat> and in ancient times, they had a little trouble with. What was air? What was breathing? What was loss of breath? What is this stuff? Okay, that in Mm -hmm. fact, you know, the word atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That is actually out of an ancient Greek word, atmos. And it's not the same word as atom. A-T-M-O and A-T-O-M are not the same word. The reason I'm bringing this up is because atom actually uh, was a word invented by the Greeks as something that's not cuttable. That is not the word that the Buddha used for anatta. It's a different Mm -hmm. word. He used the word for atmosphere, that, okay? Because in the ancient times, they thought that the atmosphere was alive. And not only that, but each one of us, because of that air, we are permanently alive. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. that that, uh, that we're um, the soul is yeah. in the air. All right, the um, I've been actually to the Burning Hats in uh, 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 Varanasi, right on the Ganges, where the poor stand in line with their little bits of money, and the rich one. Um, um, his family negotiates for the loss of all the land because <laughs> in fact the Brahmins, it doesn't matter who you are 
They want everything you've got to get it. That they don't even use enough wood. Literally, they don't use enough wood to do a full cremation. So oh, they have to. Yeah. Ah, hi, Doug. Oh, welcome. I just saw you were on, so I, I thought I'd uh, step in for a second. I'm glad to see you. We were just talking about Varanasi in India, where they have the burning huts. And that um, I was there and, and watched them uh, do the, uh, the cremations. They had eight, nine, 10, 11 guys in this one area, but each, uh, uh, no, not guys, but burning areas. And that uh, with piles of wood kind of in the background, uh, but they would always do things like break the legs at the kneecaps and fold the feet over because the feet hadn't gotten burned because there was not enough fire to burn the whole body. So eventually after it got cooked enough, they would break the legs and fold those over. But always in every case, uh, very much later towards the end of it, after they rearranged and broke the legs and stuff like that, a lot of pus and snot and uh, steam would start to come out of the nose. Because the, the brains are now boiling. Of the corpse, not the guy who is holding, the, I mean, it's not the Brahmin who's doing that. The corpse um, will be so well cooked, uh, the brains are starting to boil. And so uh, bubbles of snot and all kinds of stuff start coming out of the nose. Oh, man. This is the point in time when uh, they get their uh, Brahmin blessed shillelaghs out, dance around the corpse, braiding with this thing, and then after all the chanting, they will take it and crack it open really hard with a strike and crack the skull open to let all of the boiling stuff come out in a great big cloud of smoke and brain manure and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's quite a, a splash uh -huh. that, that comes out. Well, and good. This... I haven't had my breakfast yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Well, good, good thing I haven't had my breakfast yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, the point is, is that that steam and smoke and all of that was the Brahmin's way of releasing the soul back into the atmos, sending it home. Okay, that's the background of that stuff. And yeah. all of that was happening at the time of the Buddha, and some of it is still going on exactly the way that it did then for the same kind of reasons or whatnot. The burning house of Varanasi are old, old things. And so... Um, this, the Buddha is saying there is no atmos, which actually what he's saying is that there is no soul, that everything is temporary. There is nothing permanent about anyone that's being uh, uh, burned up, consumed with fire or cremated in Varanasi, that all of that smoke uh, or boiling liquid that is busted out of the skull by getting it cracked open it's for profit and for show, but not for the benefit of the corpse. Yeah. And then again, then again, at least from our own direct experience, we see um, that 
spoiled that like when you when you have a dead body that's just lie, lying there in the woods or something, whatever it is, it gets kind of repurposed. So in a way, it doesn't that what it's made of doesn't disappear, but the the form that used to be there won't ah, be recognized. But just because that corpse mostly went up in smoke doesn't mean that it's lost too. That all of that stuff that you would have buried in one place is now going to be floating all over the place. It'll eventually land. Yeah. <clears throat> And there all those minerals are, and no problem. <laughs> I appreciate this. This is like a charnel ground of contemplation um, in the Satipatthana, you know, when they say, oh, yeah, in this bag is uh, hair, blood, mucus. Uh -huh. <laughs> Drew, you caught me. <laughs> you caught me at it. Yes, this is exactly the stuff that's in the Satipatthana Sutta. This is interesting because we don't get to do this anymore. And maybe that's actually, no, I'm not sure that's such a good thing. Um, I was actually speaking to a medical student. And if you're not a medical student, it turns out it's really difficult to have access to um, a dead body and just being able to see one. Uh, Goenka had a video. In Ooh. fact, it was one of the very few videos. VCRs were very rare in India back in 1970s, and so were the videos. And so we saw that video a lot. <laughs> An autopsy, okay? So the point I'm making here is, is that autopsies are available on YouTube. And my favorite autopsy is actually out of a movie. And the uh, the autopsy doctor is actually Mel Brooks. Do you know who is Mel Brooks? He's an actor from the yes. olden times. <laughs> right, right. He, in fact, he does uh, comedies, and the movie is um, Dead and Loving It. Leslie Nielsen <laughs> did did that as the vampire, but uh, he did a, a a short autopsy where he goes in and cuts the thing open, usually with a knife, rips it out, and several of the people um, fall and faint. And then he grabs the heart, and he starts pulling like that and pumping it and looking around, and several more students faint. And then he chops the head open, pulls the brain out, and starts pulling that in people's faces, and the whole uh, rest of the student body standing around faint. He drops that brain down, and he says, my job's done here. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, yeah. show him the gore. Hey, what's the name of the movie? <laughs> Dead and Loving It. Okay. It's actually mm -hmm. that one scene, Dead and Loving It, and the autopsy scene. You can actually YouTube that. It's on YouTube. I actually sent out around to some of my students. I mean, it's it's one thing with uh, like human corpses, but in general, coming up on death isn't that hard. When you take a walk in the woods, you will likely have the opportunity to to find I'm, some dead bodies. It's I know. Like, I, I, I have seen a dog. In fact, it was a, in a particular town. Never mind any of the details. This dog died in that place and stayed there, and no one picked it up. It was on the side of the road. And my friend went and took a photo every day of what was going on. Yeah. And one of the things that I saw when I was there with it was is that the dogs would go and pay attention to that dog, take a smell, see what was going on, and just boogie on down the road and give a frying pip at all. 
but humans, even with a dead dog, would freak out. Yeah, that it's an interesting psychological phenomenon. Fear of death. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if we're going to get over our fear, and then in fact, if we're going to develop sukha and anapanasati, perhaps one of the ways of doing it is getting over our own fear of death by going and seeing what it is. And in fact, I greatly appreciate the fact that when I was a monk in the United States, mostly in North Carolina, but I've done funerals all over the place. I don't know how many I did, but it looked like we were doing one a week for years or two a week sometimes. That's what we did on the weekends is we went to funerals. What did you do on your weekends? <laughs> and Pretty, so, that's a nice way of partying, Domorado. <laughs> party? What? It's Pretty nice way of partying. <laughs> yes, right. Well, we got to see all the monks. That in fact, Mahasamsak was the coordinator. And that uh, in the sense that there was often more than one funeral in the state on that weekend. And we had to get the monks of who's going to, which monks are going to go to where. And since we were already living with Mahasamsak, he already had had us assigned to go to some funeral or another. And I've been to Vietnamese and Laos and uh, uh, Cambodian, uh, Thai, all kinds of places uh, going for, for funerals. And one of the things that I added to it was instead of, because I saw that Achan um, Mahasamsak he would do the chanting because that's what all of the old people were wanting the monks to do. But the uh, the younger ones often needed attention and solace. And I remember gen generally the, the point was is that if this is an old man who's dying who has a a son or a grandson, if, the, if he's really, really old, he's got a papa, but there's a grandson then that's at that age that while we're doing the funeral chant and I'm holding his hand to push the button to fire this uh, cremation machine off. That's that point in time. That's the, you know, the, the point of absolute no return. Hello, Marcus. Good to see you. Hi, everybody. Hi, the rest now, we're having a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> for, for who? For ourselves? No. As a um, a learning experience for a meditator or a dhamma dude of learning to deal with death by getting around it rather than avoiding it. That, you know, uh, go look in your local newspaper for upcoming funerals and go. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. If they'll let you into the basement of the hospital, go have a party. <laughs> <laughs> and because of COVID, there's probably a dozen or so pickup trucks with bodies laying in the back of the of the hospital already. <laughs> All you have to do is get the body bag open. You know, I've heard stories about people going to funerals just for the food and everything. Well, that's another reason, but Dhamma dudes, they have a show. <laughs> but there is also there's also certain yogic traditions that are, I think they're those that are like a bit more about the whole Kali stuff. 
that actually do like corpse meditations and, and stuff and have very sophisticated, elaborate um, instructions on how and what kind of corpse to obtain for these kind of practices and shit. I think some of those things are really ancient too. This is not uh, new. Yeah. They were doing that kind of stuff in the time of the Buddha. That's probably why he incorporated the charnel ground meditations into his uh, uh, practice with the monks. That this, a lot of what the Buddha did already existed. He just put a bunch of stuff together. <laughs> Even the Four Noble Truths, he's, he attributes to Ayurvedic medicine, and he had a whole lot of medical doctors who were trained in the Ayurvedic medicine of the ancients who were his bhikkhus. They quit being doctors and come hung out. <laughs> so it's very familiar. The whole, whole predicate of uh, Ayurvedic medicine is based upon what's the illness, what's the cause, What's it like when the illness is finished and what medication do we prescribe to get him into the state that he wants to be in? Wait, hang on. Which That's, huh? that's the Four what? Noble Truths. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I've heard this said before. Um, symptoms, diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment mm -hmm. <laughs> is one way of looking at the Four Noble Truths, which uh, I, I'm just curious about this uh, Ayurvedic thing, like, where does it like is it in a sutta somewhere or is it uh i read it in a book someplace in india and that's all that i can tell you um but yeah i like that way of phrasing it um it's a good way of uh what do you call it uh it's probably one of my favorite ways of framing it to people because uh it gets them it gets them in the problem-solving mindset. Almost. Yeah, that's the whole point of it. Or, or a better still way of, instead of being in a problem-solving uh, mindset, is to get them into there-is-no-problem mindset. That we have been habitually stuck in a problem-solving mindset. <laughs> And we go around problem problems all the time. In fact, that one of the jokes is, is that what happens to a problem solver when he runs out of problems to solve and his whole identity is, is he's the problem solver? The answer is he's just got a new problem. The problem is I don't have any problems. And so I got to go find a problem. When I find it, now I've got a problem that I can. <laughs> How many of us are like that? We get into the habit of being problem solvers, and even when we don't have a problem, we go looking for one. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> uh huh. And so, so go I ahead. I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, there seems to be this tension between what I have to, because uh, a friend of mine, a meditator friend of mine, said, you know, the ordinary, you know, what was it? The the material world is very good for things like food, shelter, clothing, and sort of stuff. And uh, he was just reminding me that, um, though I was talking about my practice and how it was going, uh, that I still have responsibilities and things that I need to take care of in this world, uh, even though um, they may not be the noble dharma, um, there's still a lot of ordinary dharma that I need to carry out. 
if you do those things with a mind that's noble, yeah. then those things are noble. And if you do those things with a mind that's not noble, <clears throat> then here's an example of that. If the um, uh, the old goat herd, who is also a rabbi, who is the one in the village who is charged with and has the responsibility of killing this next goat, and he approaches that goat with a mind that's noble, he won't kill it. He'll yeah. say, wait a while <laughs> until my mind is no longer noble, and then I'll do the dirty deed. But going back to the problem solving thing, um, it's almost required of me in doing ordinary tasks to see something, fix it, move on, think about it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then when I have to, when I not when I have to, when I choose to um, sit down to practice, sometimes I'm able to remind myself, oh, I don't need to untangle these knots anymore. They're just like they're just fine as there is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm able to remember that. And sometimes I don't wake up. And if I wake up, I don't take a proper look. Um, to And then I see the knot and I think that, oh, I need to like untangle this rather than just like, oh, no, it's fine. Just let it be. OK, and well, let kind it, of switching it. back and forth is. Let's let's put this in context in the yeah. sense of doing it when you're off by yourself doing what many people will call a formal practice. Uh, are you doing this shooting from the hip while you're out there in the world dodging the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Those are two different things because we want to get away from it all, all those slings and arrows of outrageous fortune so we can actually begin to practice getting all of those slings and arrows actually out of the mind. Yeah. And so um, getting ourselves into a really good mood and then in a good mood, practicing going back into the actual slings and arrows. And how long can we maintain that good mood? And maybe yeah. as soon as we lose it, if we got mindfulness at that point, we can still withdraw from the battlefield wounded and go mm -hmm. heal ourselves again. And then uh, in that regard, that's like picking yourself up, dusting yourself off, and let's go back into the fray. I guess my point is that it almost seems like I, I very much see the advantages of a retreat now because you just got that set amount of time, whereas here you're you're getting dirty and then or you're falling off and you're picking back up, falling off, picking back up, falling off, picking back up again and again and again. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it is, uh, I feel like it takes more effort. And you that momentum, that attitude um, seems to be a little bit slower to build. Yes, in fact, you're right. It does take more effort simply because there's more slings and arrows of outrageous fortune coming at you. Yeah. <laughs> so as you can get away from it all, literally, then the only slings and arrows of outrageous fortune are the ones that you stab in yourself with. And, and here's an interesting point with that, and that is, is that uh, it's well known in these 10 day retreats that the first day or two, the students are still worried about the past in the sense of how they got there and all the trouble they had to get to the retreat and how much it cost and blah, 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 blah. 
And right at the end of the treat, the only thing that the students think about is how they're going to get out of here, where they're going to go, what's their transportation, and all of that kind of stuff. And so they only have a few days in the middle to actually pay attention to what are we doing in the retreat. <laughs> uh, and in that regard, the question, the answer would be that, hey, guys, on the first day of the retreat or hopefully before you even go into the treat, you got to know that, hey, you can start to retreat right now. You don't have to wait until the mind drains out all of the slings and arrows that you brought in there from the past day and week. I actually, uh, gosh, um, I, I realized this uh, last time I went on a retreat, I, I made the mistake of watching a Harry Potter movie the day before. <laughs> and there you got Harry Potter flying around the insides of your mind. I, <laughs> <on the> room. <laughs> it was fantastic, Tamarato. I cannot tell you. I, I think it was Saturday evening I watched Harry Potter and then one of the sits either on the first day or the second day it wasn't just I, I only watched one harry potter movie but one of the sits one of the hours i went through the entire like seven books eight movies in my head <laughs> it was so i wasn't even mad i was just like okay cool i need to know not to do this next time i need to clear out my mind before i get on retreat mm -hmm. well uh so we can say in one regard, congratulations for sitting through the whole sequence and doing it pretty cheaply. I mean, if you'd have done that every day in a movie theater, it would have been quite expensive. So congratulations for saving yourself some money and maybe even some time if that was what the point of the meditation retreat was. But if you had something else on your mind <laughs> about getting stuff off your mind, then maybe it would have been a better practice. And so this is the suggestion is the next time you go to the retreat, everybody who goes to retreat, go with the idea that this is the best holiday I've ever had. Yeah. I've got no place yeah. to go and nothing to do. And the bell is not my boss. And I'm here just to chill. Yeah. And every time I'm stopped chilling, I can see that. And turn that around too. And so we just practicing being chilled for 10 days. And wow, it is just so amazing. Go ahead, Dak. I've got a question. You you mentioned the term outrageous fortunes. What do you mean by that? Oh, I think this is slang from uh, Shakespeare. And the quote is slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Now, what the, for the word fortune here is not a big pile of money, but yeah. it's rather uh, your fate or uh, what happens to you. That's yeah. where the word happiness comes from, is, is that it's just a happening. Okay, yeah. so you could rephrase that as the slings and arrows that just happen by. Yeah, so the, 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 the stuff that every day, that happens every day, which you may or may not like, which you have no control over, no control over whatsoever until we start recognizing how much control we have of standing out of the way and not letting those slings and arrows hit us. But we sure. do not have any control over the slings and arrows other than to see them coming and soon enough in advance so that they don't whack us. Yeah. 
Now, the other point is, is that they're not outrageous until they do whack us. And when they're when we do get hit with it, we feel like this is an outrage. And they only whack us when we have when we're certain- not looking right <laughs> when we're not paying attention. Yeah. In other words, the, the, the thing of it is, is like some big guy stood up on the elevator or uh, excuse me, on the escalator and stepped on your foot. OK, that's one of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune if you don't like it. But if you're mindful, if you're watching what's going, just as he begins to step right on your foot, you just happen to move it just enough to get it out of the way. This is a thing I was trying to um, explain to a friend. Um, I'd started meditating, you know, formally uh, a lot, like, you know, and they were asking for, okay, how does that change your life? And I was trying, it was really hard you to explain. You don't get stepped on. <laughs> That's how it changes your life. <laughs> Basically, yes. It was really hard to explain. It's like, I can't give you any positive benefits because you don't, like, at some point, um, you know, initially you have to put in the effort, but then it becomes a habit and it becomes a wholesome habit. And you don't realize the arrows that you even kind of subconsciously stepped out of the way of almost. Mm-hmm. But it was but it's the like, arrows that we let hit us. By the yeah, way, this like, fits in really, really well with the sutta. I think it's number 64 in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha talks about somebody actually getting shot with an arrow as a metaphor. And his friend saw it. And so they go in to get a doctor. And the doctor comes up and about to put the salve on it and getting ready to take the arrow out. And the guy says, wait a minute. Before you take the arrow out, I want to know who shot me. I want to know why he shot me. I want to know what clan he's from. Let me look at this arrow to where I can see where it comes from. You know, and the Buddha then says, if you have that attitude, you will probably die asking questions before you take the arrow out. The right thing to do is to stop asking questions, try and stop trying to figure stuff out and take the arrow out. If you're already hit. That's the whole thing is just to take and and in that regard, you could say that in this case, the arrow is actually just an unwholesome thought to send the mind. And what is that unwholesome thought? Well, this unwholesome thought was probably triggered by something that someone said. Like, you're too critical, you're too fat, you're too ugly, you're a bully. I mean, I've been having a long list of things that I've had to dodge. (laughs) Guys, I got to go get some breakfast in. Uh, It was nice talking to you. Have a good one. All right, Dag, that's great. Bye, Dag. Bye. So we can actually get back into that connection between Anapanasati Sutta and the Great Forty in the sense of the Anapanasati Sutta's um, seven factors of enlightenment show the sequence of events. And also, so does the Eightfold Noble Path, the way that it's taught in the Great Forty. And that is mindfulness and investigation and the right effort to change it 
doing that over and over again builds up the uh, uh, the right attitude or the right expectation or uh, something that seems in our language would be pre-verbal or pre-thought. It's a niggle or an indication that in fact that that attitude or that niggle or that indication is what gives rise to the dialogue of the thought. And that dialogue of the thought then is what makes us feel bad. In other words, we perceive danger. And what we can begin to do is to see these little niggles giving thought, giving almost bypassing the verbal thought so that it actually is a uh, a niggle that there is some danger followed immediately by fear without us having to even talk ourselves into it. So this is that point then where we begin to see that we have a control over this. And that's why the Buddha actually puts these jhana factors right there as aspects of the Anapanasati Sutta, Pitti and Sukha. Let's mm. come out of these bad feelings that we have that are generated through the attitude of something is dangerous and start talking ourselves into nothing is dangerous here. Everything is okay. There are no problems to solve. There's no place to go. Everything is hunky-dory. Well, we can relax. And that's then the beginning of the feeling because we're talking ourselves into it. And as we relax and feel relaxed, we begin then to that uh, um, that attitude change of, well, I could do this. And so that's step five and six of Anapanasati. Now, the reason that it's in the sutta in the order that it is is because in Pali language, there is a word called pitisukha. It's just one word and it's used often. And generally, they try to translate it individually as each one rather than having it as its own oxymoron or its own word. So piti sukha is actually a combination of piti and sukha, but it's in uh, almost as, as if it's the same thing, but that there are degrees of it. So that both of them have the quality of um, safety security and comfort and satisfaction but then pity uh, excuse me uh yeah satisfaction and then pity adds the extra ingredient of success we did it but we got it okay that kind of feeling that is in fact what they're trying to describe in the suttas about what is pity they're giving that physical reaction of energy coming up the back the feeling of strength and power that actually exudes in physical form in many cases, but then it relaxes even to more just a mental uh, feeling of uh, strong well-being. We've got it made. We can do this. It's confidence. <clears throat> this is the Pali word, by the way, of shada or shrada. Confidence, but not faith. It's translated out of the Pali and English into the word faith, and it misses the point. This is not faith. This is direct experience mm -hmm. over and over and over gaining confidence. Yeah, when you see it like That's over really and point. over again. This is why faith it's is also, such a bad translation. Yeah, there is so much that has to do with the translation. Like samadhi doesn't mean concentration. It means gathering the factors together. 
but is wronging like on concentration, right? So if you're going to have the samati of first jhana, that means that you have to have all the factors together. And what are the factors is a gladdened mind or a mind that's free from hindrances, pity, sukha, applying the mind to these wholesome things and sustaining it on there. And then the sixth ingredient is, and do all of this relaxed. And there we go all through the Anapanasati Sutta. You see, we're touching, by talking about first jhana, we're actually touching all the Niki notes on the piano of Anapanasati. And I think that that's just so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that Anapanasati is using the Eightfold Noble Path to get the mind into first jhana. And then what do we do? Well, now we're going to do the noting or the investigation, but now we only have wholesome things to note and to investigate. Like, how is my sukha? How is my pity? How is my investigation? How is my uh, uh, applied mind? Can I keep applying it back to the Dhamma? Can I keep sustaining it back to the Dhamma over and over again? And so actually what we're investigating now that we're into first jhana is the factors of first jhana. Ta-da! Isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Except that when we're into first jhana and we take the uh, attention off of the applied and sustained thought and give no thought to the thought at all, but really start paying attention to how good we feel, that's the second jhana is really paying attention to how good we can feel when we've talked ourselves into it. And then that relaxes into the third jhana. So the hallmark of the investigation of first jhana is to investigate first the first jhana, then to really reinvestigate pity, and then investigate sukha. And when we're investigating sukha, that's the third jhana. And then when we start to investigate the relationships with all of this, that's the fourth jhana. That's when we're really relaxed and the mind's really super sharp and can see what's going on. But these are ordinary states. These are not magical states, guys. This is just hallmarks or I'm, the directions that I'm giving is for ordinary states of mind. The question is, how long can you sustain them? Well, the, way, the answer to that is we practice sustaining it with the first jhana. Let's say the um, the the bottom line or the foundation for the investigation of the say that, but now we're to the Paticca Samuppada in the sense of everything is arising and passing away, which is actually now the mm -hmm. fourth of Anapanasati. So basically, the way that it looks like is, is that when we get the uh, the uh, Satipatthana going, we do it in the sense of getting the, the body, the feelings, and the mind together into first jhana, so now we can properly investigate the Dhammanupasana. The arising and the passing away of everything. The arising and passing away of everything, what? The answer is the arising and the passing away of everything is wholesome because everything is wholesome right now, which means the arising and the passing away moment by moment of the jhana factors so that when we're paying attention to the applied thought, we're not paying attention to the, um, the pity or the sukha. When we're paying attention to the pity, we're no longer into the thoughts. They have passed away. 
when we go into the sukha very deeply, that means that we're letting the pity, the, the thrill, go away and the relaxation take over. And so the arising and the passing away, and we go from state to state and an arising and a passing away, and we begin to watch that process too. Everything is temporary, depending upon what I'm paying attention to. If I keep changing my attention, every my whole world changes as the attention changes. And to now we're in a state to where everything that I have to look at is all wholesome. whoop de doo <laughs> <laughs> So that's the kind of way of looking at the integration of the Anapanasati and the Paticca Samapada and the Eightfold Noble Path and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Satipatthana and all of those um, uh, subside uh, things like the uh, the five aggregates. They all fit into a nice little package. They're all just one thing. But when uh, young students start studying all of this, it looks like a massive amount of literature to follow through on, rather than by just simply practicing correctly. There's only really a few things that we need to mm. practice. If we practice correctly, we could just see how all of that stuff fits together instead of trying to figure it out before we start to practice. So it all comes together back into a unified whole again. Everything about the Buddhist teaching is all about unity. So, I mean, I'm convinced that this is a, a reasonable way to go because uh, <laughs> having tried it, I do much prefer. I do much prefer being a wholesome, uh, uh, sorry, having a wholesome, nurturing mind. And I don't really care. Well, I don't really care as much. Like, I see that this is the important thing. And, you know, whatever fruits of meditation and all attainments or whatever, like, if you're satisfied, those will come. Um, but what do you, how do you respond to those people who say that this is the slow path and you don't need to worry about Johnny, just start noting, noting, noting? <laughs> all right. Let us say that two different competing restaurants of approximately the same size start off in the beginning of the evening's cooking meals. They're both clean. Okay. And that one has a manager that says, never mind the mess you make, you keep cooking food. And the other manager of the other restaurant says, as you cook, clean up after yourself. Now, in the beginning of the evening, the team who is uh, uh, just letting things go and be sloppy, they're actually being able to cook more food. But over time, as the mess piles up, they're going to have to slow down just because they want to stop getting the garbage that they had from the last meal mixed in with the food that they're trying to pretend uh, uh, cook now. And the counter is messy. Nobody's wiped off anything. The knives are dirty. And um, it affects the food. So which do you think is the better way to go is for people to when they're uh, working in a kitchen to clean up their mess as they go or to let the mess pile up? Drew. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's it's it's. I mean, I I do this in my own kitchen. I clean up as I go, so that I, yeah. I, I, I like. I, this is how I. I mean, I know that some people don't do this, and I find this very difficult to work with. Uh, very difficult to cook with. Uh, but yeah, I clean up as I go the best I can. You know, sometimes there's a mm-hmm. big mess, and that's fine. But if I can, I clean up before I'm uh, just a little bit, just putting the sink, dishes in the sink, making sure that things are, there's enough space for the next bit. Oh, actually, what I'm I'm kind of telling a joke because that first kind of restaurant, nobody has that kind of restaurant. Everybody, when they're slicing tomatoes, if there's a little piece of the tomato like the top of it or whatever, then the bin is right there. They're going to pick that piece up and throw it in the bin, and they're finished with it. They're cleaning up as they go. But in our daily lives, that's we leave that job to sleep alone. That is sleeps and dreams job to do the cleanup of the mess. And often we don't wake up with a clean kitchen of a mind. Yeah, I think that happened to me this morning. <laughs> you know so, how you say sometimes you feel like a nut? <laughs> sometimes you don't. Exactly so. But what we could do with that <laughs> is, is that we could develop this practice of intentionally cleaning the mind, intentionally gladdening the mind, intentionally practicing Anapanasati. And intentionally do a scrub job from time to time, right in the middle of dinner, we can just say, wait a minute. Yeah. Okay, I'm good to go now. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to try. Um, okay, I'm I'm making a uh and a strong intention or a strong attitude i'll try doing that more often throughout the day like a proper deep clean but you know it doesn't have to take long mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't so have that, to take long at all no 10 15 seconds is all you need because uh that thing that i mentioned earlier of well i have to do things in the ordinary world but it makes it harder to you know you're just falling off and getting back up falling off and getting back up more often mm-hmm. um, exactly Right. So, in fact, when you do fall off and recognize that you fall off, take five, five seconds and yeah. get back up and dust yourself off. <laughs> Instead of leaving it to practice, uh, uh-huh. which, which, I mean, I can manage it, but it's a lot harder. <laughs> well, oh. that's where Sati comes in, is we have to remember to take five. <laughs> when the boss just hit us with an arrow. Instead of, you know, arguing with him about why he shot us, we could take five and clean it out and figure out that it wasn't the narrow he shot us with at all. That was our <laughs> belief system that he was shooting slings and arrows of outrageous fortune when, in fact, he may have just been walking by <laughs> saying hi. I wanted to add, um, I think, to Don Murato is... Um, the uh, sort of mentality of like when you remember to has helped me a lot because there's that thing like oh I need to do this all the time or you know what I mean it becomes like another rule oh, and it's rules. like you're gonna I've seen yeah. people carry rule list around oh yeah. you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do that that keeps us upset and uptight mm-hmm. comparing ourselves against a set of standards that we're carrying around. And now we're recognizing that, hey, man, we can set the standards so low that I'm automatically passing the grade. 
So it's just like, oh, when you remember, it's like, oh, how wonderful it is that I remembered the breath, not, oh, no, I forgot. Oh, you know, I, uh-huh. I, why, why wasn't I mindful five minutes ago, right? And it's like, <laughs> there's, a, there's a great sutta about, about that. Um, I can't remember which one it is. I always forget the numbers. However, it's the one where the, the Buddha's asking a, a group of monks, it's like, which one is, um, and how they should, they, they're asking the monks how they should uh remember the breath or remember how to breathe well one says oh if, if you breathe every if you breathe well every if you remember to breathe once every day or something like that good with mindfulness then it isn't a day wasted or something like that and then the next monk says oh if i remember to take a good breath and remember the breath every minute that's good and it goes it keeps on going on like that until um the last monk says oh um i can if i can remember this very breath right now oh. that, yeah yeah and that's good because if you do remember the breath it's always going to be it's now this one yeah this, this, yeah, this one yeah, this you one can't and then if you feel good about it you, it, you don't day, have to you beat can yourself only... up about it because there it is yeah <laughs> I, I, I think i'm talking to know about that sutta but i do also <laughs> not remember the number on it he's in the samyutta someplace but I don't remember. I think Wait, that's a good one. Um, I, I like that let's one. Unpack a little bit because uh, that conclusion, that punchline was a bit too quick for me. Um, so I'll try to find it for days, you, Oh, it is basically it's moving from a time frame oriented more and more often until it gets down to the last monk, number four or five or something on the list where he says this breath. And that's the one the Buddha is talking about, not one a day. Mm. But if you remember it just once a day, at least you're remembering it that one time. That's a now. You remembered it. That's what we're doing here. Okay. So this is actually then the, the point here is the development of sati. When do you do it? When you remember to do it. That's the point of that sutta. Wait, that we don't, don't plan on it in advance. We just do it when we yeah. remember to do it. Now, so Drew or uh, Marcus, if you can dig that one up, we'll post it with the uh, <laughs> the video. <laughs> David, uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to add. Um, I think too with the mindfulness of breathing, right? The in and the out breaths, like that, really helps with it because in order to discern whether it's an in or an out breath, like you have to be here now, right? Like that kind mm-hmm. of helps. Yeah. There's even a little bit more to it in the sense that it mentions in the sutta mindful to, uh, or, and we're talking about sati now, mindfulness mm-hmm. or actually yeah. pay attention, and in this case, kind of control, that this is a long, deep in-breath. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that or as well. Or that this is a long, deep out-breath, but that has that intention to it that is discussed in other places that we act. One of the ways that I say it in the English language is that we got to have some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. We got to put some effort into this. Yeah, having like the long, deep breaths. Yeah, no, definitely helps to have the skin in the game and to be involved with it. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. Yeah, I, I have found that. Um. And, it, and it helps us pay attention also to the point that part of the outcome of this is to get the body really relaxed, really yeah. comfortable. As opposed to what we see in Western meditation of sitting long hours that you're supposed to endure 
sensations and pain and get a tough attitude because you can handle the pain rather mm-hmm. than getting a tough attitude because you know how to avoid pain rather than <laughs> tough it out. And how do you do that? It's by being relaxed. Hey, if your arm hurts when you move it in that direction, don't move it in that direction. It's trying to send you a message. <laughs> I'm thinking most specifically yeah. the arm that had a cast in it. And every time that you try to do, I mean, teenagers are like this. It takes really a hard time for the bones to heal because the kids won't leave the hands free. If a, if a right-handed kid at the age of 14 breaks his right arm, he will not do what the doctors tell him unless the doctors strap his arm down so he cannot use that hand. Because while he's using the hand, he's moving all of that stuff in the arm, keeping it from being able to heal. And he keeps complaining about how much his arm hurts, and if he'd leave it alone, <laughs> it would be okay. <laughs> Rest. Okay, and we need also to do that for everything, that everything needs exercising and rest. And exercising and rest. But oftentimes within our society, it's exercise, exercise, exercise. The more you do, the more you get over and over and over again without Mm -hmm. taking that reward of resting. We don't even know how to rest. There's not that rest, that release. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that rest that we're talking about, that relief, that calmness that the Buddha is talking about, uh, the words that he uses become magical, like the mm-hmm. word nibbana. Mm-hmm. The word nibbana only means to chill, baby, cool off, settle down, relax. But somehow or another, it's got magical qualities that it's a city or it's after death or it's all kinds <laughs> of, um, uh, you know, a heaven, a place mm-hmm. to go rather than merely just chilling. So this is what we need to do is that, yes, we're not saying don't have any intense um, mm-hmm. efforts or whatever. We're saying, oh, every time that you get hit by any of that intensity, mm-hmm. the sling or the arrow of the outrageous fortune, this is the moment of time to relax and take that arrow out. What arrow? The arrow of the mind of, oh, I didn't like what happened just now. Let's get that healing process. So you come back to what? Oh, yeah, I can handle that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what the boss is pointing at, and I don't have to feel bad. Yeah, I really <laughs> screwed that one up. Let's fix it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There isn't like that thing where it kicks in so much with it. I mean, that's the survival thing as well right of that like oh i need to protect myself and so if they criticize me for this and that and all the other thing but you're exactly right with your language listen to what you said you have to protect yourself yes (laughs) (laughs) because your the organism the human body is going to be fine sitting there there is no lynch mob coming for you there are Uh no alligators there so the body mm-hmm. will survive. The question is, will the self survive this disaster? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Yeah, it will, but it'll <laughs> feel really wounded. <laughs> <laughs> and so can you get unwounded in a hurry? Mm-hmm. 
If you get wounded, can you get unwounded in a hurry? That's where we need Anapanasati right there in front of the boss. Take a deep breath. This too shall pass. Never mind. I can handle this. Oh, yeah, yeah boss. I see what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and True. sometimes i guess yeah i was just thinking that like i guess maybe it's worth mentioning um i don't know i feel like sometimes you forget or sometimes you know but you're you're struggling and it's okay to ask for help at that point mm-hmm. like I, I, presumably that's why we have the sangha it's like oh dude i'm having a tough day it's, like, it's okay my Dhamma, dude. So. we've got this we've got this exactly so that's in fact um do you know the lines in that song about don't worry, be happy? There's a line in there that says, you're not happy, give me a call, I make you happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the song, That's it. <laughs> Wait, what was the, say that line again? There's a line in the song. It's um, uh, Bobby, both Bobby McFerrin and um, uh, Bob Marley uh, mm-hmm. of... Um, uh, Rastafarian fame have this song uh, Don't Worry Be Happy yeah. Don't Worry Be ha- Well there's a line in that song that it says If you're not happy give me a call I make you happy Yeah yeah, that's it uh, And that's the sangha Being willing to make people happy Well you gotta have some happy before you could give it away You can't yeah. give a Merry Christmas if you don't have Merry so get married. <laughs> <laughs> Have your own damn ho ho hos. I think that comes back too with like the noble Dhamma, right? Where you are gladdening the mind, doing taking care of that. And then the sila comes, right? So, yes, yeah. exactly. Because if you can settle down and take a deep breath and uh, say everything is okay, it's unlikely for you then to stand up and clobber your boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've found the practice to be a huge benefit for like just, you know, carrying on like when I'm at my job and all that and just... Oh, I can still just enjoy, right? Like, yeah, I can take right. a deep breath. That's what I'm here for. I can enjoy this. I don't have to make it work. I can have fun. Yeah, yeah. Like, yesterday, I got called in for a extra, you know, shift. I had to cover for someone or, you know, but I wanted to cover for someone because I'm like, hey, you know what? It kind of helps out, you know? And so I just went, you know, I went in and I'm just like, hey, I can remember to take a deep breath and come <laughs> back home and it's all good, right? Yeah, that is a really, really excellent way of looking at. And we'll finish up with this. And that is there are various groups of the letter P that's used. And the one group that I'm thinking of is practice, performance and play. Hmm. That any good musician has to go through that sequence. So we have to practice first, and generally we practice. We don't even want mommy to hear us play the piano, especially if it's violin, because much of the practice in the early days is actually being (laughs) able to finger it so that you get the right note that you're trying to hit. (laughs) And later, it's time to do a public performance, and we've got all butterflies in the stomach and anything like that, and so we're intently making sure that we're practicing correctly in front of an audience. 
we're really on it. We're going to make sure. But if we played that t- that same tune a hundred times, three hundred times, five hundred times, it's not a, no longer a matter of knowing it by heart. No, that was like the fourth or fifth time that we played it. <laughs> no, learning it by heart means that it really is in there. And now when we perform that piece of music, it's actually quite playful that we really enjoy playing it. It gets a little bounce to it, okay, <clears throat> that is not there in the performance. So as your practice, Drew, increases your ability to uh, to be in that performance mood of dealing with the boss or whoever like that is still just the performance play. Mm-hmm. There'll become a day when you get so skilled at doing that that you can even play <laughs> with an angry boss. Here's the thing. Um, I, I just uh, maybe one last question. Um, why is it that like. Now I can sit down and I can sit down for a lot longer and I can be um, a lot more confident uh, most of the time. You know, obviously you have ups and downs, but most of the time, like, I would not have even imagined that my practice would be like this even just a few months ago. Honestly, like, if somebody had told me this is what I know, it doesn't do me any good when I say the kids, students, I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) This is like... I just genuinely, I would have thought, like, if somebody had told me this, I think I would have thought they were crazy. Like, like, how do you fit this in your life? How does this work? You know, like, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, as soon as I have, you know, uh, one of those, sometimes you feel like a nut sits, I forget how far I've come. And just a few months ago, the, the even the, the, the thought of even having a, uh, you know, I feel like a nut sit for that long would have been like, whoa, how'd you do that? <laughs> Uh huh. Well, that's the sati. We remember more often and we remember quicker when that stuff comes up. When that when those feelings of oh, this is a nut to crack. If we can remember that time at that point, we can say, oh, wait a minute, I can crack this nut. There's nothing to it. And so sometimes we think things are hard or a nut, and sometimes we say that things are easy. It's more like pudding. <laughs> Everybody thinks they've got an avocado when all they have is a cream donut. <laughs> right? Isn't yeah. it the avocado that's got a great big nut inside? Uh-huh. And not only that, but the stuff around it is not all of that great. It's almost an acquired taste. (laughs) And that's what we think life is. It's an avocado. Where, in fact, no, life is really a cream donut. It's up to you, your attitude. (laughs) Yeah. And so this is when we get to the point of that we can perform the Dhamma when we're around other people that, are not performing or have no clue about the Dhamma. We can still get those slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that they ding us with and remove that in five seconds or so. And then pretty soon we get to the point that, hey, that doesn't ding at all. I don't even have to, you know, that doesn't even slow me down. I'm still dancing with this dude. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so that's when it becomes playful. 
So the skill levels is growing, and when the skills get so much that you've got this tune wired and you know it, then you don't have to pay much close attention to getting every step or every note correct. You're just having too much fun now. <laughs> yeah. Because you know what we're playing is music, not noise. Yeah. Drew, thanks for sharing. I'm really glad that you guys are here. And Marcus, thank you. You're the uh, poly scholar here. By the way, everybody, <laughs> Marcus actually lives here in Thailand. No, I just wanted to say just thank you as well. Um, every time, like, you know, Mara's like, oh, you know, you're hungry. You don't need to jump on the call or it's fine. You can sleep in or something. And yeah i always enjoy the call like it, it's just like oh it's like that reset i was like oh yeah no this is how like oh yeah this is how you do it this is how you do yeah. it and just come back to it every week it's just really useful uh -huh. <laughs> excellent excellent and i'm the same way i like it <laughs> i come here because i really get a kick out of seeing the students as they grow and mature watch the various styles uh -huh. exactly. <laughs> okay you know i found something kind of similar um, but it does tie in. You were talking about um, when I when I joined about the whole funeral party thing, and it's actually it's actually <laughs> on the Maranesati Sutta, mindfulness of death. And so maybe either I've got it mixed up, or or it was mindfulness of death all along. Where it says when should you? Uh, ooh, uh, I'll 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 link it. <laughs> I'll link it. Yeah. Okay, it's a long one. Yeah, I'll link it to the. Uh to the Sangha UK for us to see later, and we'll put it on the link okay. uh, on the YouTube. So anyway, guys, thank you very much. This has been really great. It has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, I'm having a ball. Yeah. You don't have to thank me. I'm the one who gets all the benefit. <laughs> As they said in the 18th century, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of pleasure to go around in this case. Shucks, and I thought it was all mine. <laughs> <laughs> not me, not mine. Not, oh, yeah, okay, you can have some too. <laughs> it's lovely to share with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. See you. Thank you. Have a good day, everybody. Okay, bye-bye. All right. All right.